realizes this, but he was a tremendous uh, blessing and encouragement to me. Um, I was a lot younger then, and uh, just uh, venturing out on this uh, this new project, doing a, a brand new church building, and uh, he uh, he just boosted my faith, encouraged me in great ways, and uh, that's not his only claim to fame. <laughs> Uh, Dr. June Bencer was uh, the director of the World Evangelical Fellowship. Did I get that right? Uh, and, uh, and, and the other claim to fame is, of course, that he is the brother-in-law to Alec and, and uh, not just Alec, Arnell, Ao, Ali. Who am I missing? Who? And Azal, sorry. I said Arnell. Did I say Arnell? Arnell, you were supposed to sing this morning. I'm very disappointed in you. I actually am not. He, he's got a sore throat. We'll have to let him off the hook. But it's so it's wonderful to have you here with us and worshiping and, and uh, ministering to us the Word of God. God bless you to come and minister. Let's welcome him this morning. Well, belated Mary Christmas, perhaps all of you, that it is a joy to be here again. And uh, thanks to Pastor Alan for inviting me to share the Word of God this morning. My wife is with me as well. And last September, we were in Toronto. And uh, after I spoke at the church, two women approached her and said, Are you the second wife of Dr. Benson? I was so upset about it, and I think the judgment that she was my second wife was based on the colors of our hair. (laughs) Well, I just want you to know that uh, she is my only wife, and uh, the reason we had different colors is because I have not followed Paul to die for Jesus daily. We have celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary a few weeks ago. And uh, people ask us the question, what are the secrets of staying together for 37 years? And I said one of them would be communication. We're not exactly very good at it, but we are trying to communicate with one another in one form or the other. There was this couple, of course, you remember that... uh, They had their own quarrels, even though they were Christians. I don't know in Canada if married couples or Christians quarrel as well, but in my part of the world they do. And uh, one night, the husband was so upset with the wife, but she could not talk to her. Of course, couples quarreled because they were both right. If one is wrong, it's easier to reconcile, but when both are right, That's when the quarrel begins. And so he needed to wake up early in the morning, and he wrote a note and placed it on the side table of his wife and said, wake me up tomorrow at 6 in the morning. But he woke up at 7, upset that the wife did not wake her up at 6 in the morning. She was about to tell her about that when she noticed the wife placed also a note by the side of her table. And the note said, it's 6 o'clock, please wake up. (laughs) That's good communication. 
I notice as I travel around that there are many varieties of English as well. Canadian English is one variety, and Filipino English is another. So I'm using Filipino English this morning. And if you don't understand my English, just uh, raise your hands and I will shout louder. <laughs> Christmas is very big in Asia, particularly in the Philippines. It will be a lot of carnivals, festivities, and some hide even and take a vacation during Christmas time because it would also be very expensive during Christmas time, gift giving, and you have so many relatives and so on and so forth. And because of the expectations of culture that you will have parties at home, then sometimes you borrow money, you enjoy December, and then wake up to the reality that in January you owe people so much. One man borrowed so much money and promised that it would be paid in, by January 15, and uh, by January 14, he could not sleep. And so his wife asked him, why can't you sleep? He said, I promised my friend I'll pay him $5,000 tomorrow and I don't have the money. So the wife got out of the bedroom, dialed the phone, called up his friend, came back to the room and said, now you go to sleep. I told your friend you cannot pay tomorrow. It's turn for him not to sleep. <laughs> but Christmas in many ways has a lot of things for us to reflect upon. Sometimes you're wondering whether Christmas really is about Christ or about business. And one theologian in Asia once pointed out that during Christmas time, the cult of the infant Jesus is becoming reinforced, or it's reinforced again and again. You see, we are struggling with the concept of a powerless Christ in our midst. And sometimes the Jesus that is in the manger, the Madonna and child, for example, reinforces the idea that Christ is helpless always dependent upon someone else, even for his life. So take a look at the Pieta, for example, where Jesus is dying by, or by his mother's lap. Or you take a look at the crucifix where Jesus is nailed on the cross. And all of these images are reinforced in our culture and values so much so that Christ becomes powerless indeed. And in many ways, we Christians do not seem to realize that, but it comes into the psyche of our culture. But Christmas is different. I was reading First Thing magazine, an interfaith magazine the other night, and I was struck by the poem written by Wilmer Miller. The, the title of the poem was Near Starbucks. A homeless woman sleeps outside the door. She smells of urine. So the customers who eat lemon pie and talk about the poor Steep wide of her in winter and in summer. But she has noticed them in their retreat of tea and cafe latte. Oh yes, she sees their pious nonchalance. They give her quarters on the holidays, and she would give them stories with her gaze. A childhood served on white enamel plates, a father's drunk abuse, teen runaways to search for something, love, or merely dates, a candy wrapper life in lingerie. But eye contact will be precious in the street, so, takes, so she takes their pocket chains and falls asleep. 
And then he added these lines, and I am no better in my arrogance and this complacent little cubicle. If I could be like Jesus just for once, I'd wake her up and make her beautiful. And I thought it's all about Christmas, isn't it? Not so much about ourselves, perhaps, but about making other lives beautiful. So today, the final Sunday of the year, let me talk about some vignettes of Christmas. And I'm taking Matthew chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 as well. There will be some short scenarios that I'd like to remind ourselves and perhaps come up with some lessons for reflections. Matthew chapter 1 talks about the ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's so amazing that the whole chapter was devoted to that. And if you take a look at Matthew chapter 1, it is not very good scripture for scripture reading on a Sunday service. For one, some of the names are very hard to pronounce. And if you take a look at that, it becomes monotonous. But if you take a look closer at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find symmetry and beauty in this presentation. The Bible tells us there are three divisions of 14 generations each. It spans from the time of Abraham to that of Jesus Christ. Perhaps in terms of timing, you can take a look at about 2,000 year gap, or in terms of the generations measured as 40 years each, at least about 1,700 years gap. But you take a look at the symmetry in terms of a suggested plan of God for our world and for our lives. For example, you can take a look at Genesis chapter 22, when at the sacrifice of Isaac at Mount Moriah, Abraham saw Jesus Christ, as it were. In other words, the sacrifice of Isaac was a prefiguring of Calvary itself. And then from Genesis chapter 22, you can find that fulfillment in John 8:56, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself told those hearers of his, and he said, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. So the linkage from Genesis 12, the times of Abraham, to the times of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 58, is clearly presented here. Or perhaps you can take a look at an earlier dating from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When Adam and Eve sinned, and there was the promise of the seed that will defeat the powers of the enemy. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah was promised to mankind. And then link that with Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, came. Now the amazing thing about the Bible is that in the Bible you have two words that describe time primarily. The first of that is chronos, which speaks about seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. And the other side is that of Kairos, as mentioned in Galatians 4 and 4. It talks about a specific event within the chronos itself. In other words, we understand chronos very easily because we have the calendar that measures our time against which we plan our lives from day to day. But within the concept of chronos itself, God introduced something new within the concept of time, and that is Kairos, an event, a salvific event in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, what he's saying is that 
within the context of time itself, something new can take place, reminding us that God said, I'm the God that is creating something new constantly. And within the chronos of time, an event can take place in the lives of anyone in that they can meet the Lord Jesus Christ, the Kairos of the time. And that makes our lives exciting, isn't it? That as Christians, every moment of our lives, a Kairos can take place, something new can take place in our lives, or we can lead someone to something new that the old becomes new in that sense. And so I believe that Christmas is a reminder for us that we should not be wasteful of time, that we should not waste our freedom as a matter of fact, but indeed think consciously that within the Kronos there is the Kairos that God can use you and me to lead someone to Jesus Christ, to bring healing, to bring reconciliation, and to make the lives of others much more beautiful than they were the year before. But at the same time, within the symmetry of time that suggests the redemptive plan of God, there is the asymmetrical concept in Matthew chapter 1 as well. If you take a look, for example, at genealogy here, it is from male to male. And all of a sudden, five names broke out of the pattern of male to male, and five female names came up. And then you begin to realize also that it was from Jew to Jew, and all of a sudden there was a break in it, and then there were Gentiles included in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the members of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ were notorious characters. Some were prostitutes, others were adulterers, others were evil kings. And sometimes in your life and my life we are ashamed of our past and our ancestors who were notorious. And sometimes we do not wish to be identified with our forefathers. But the point in time simply that in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, somehow, scripture writer was not ashamed to point out that the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ was not all perfect. That there was something wrong with some of his ancestors. But perhaps it is somehow a promise of grace that God can change. That God can forget the past. That God can touch our lives. That regardless of the sins of the past, God can change that as well. So perhaps we cannot change the past, but the present certainly. God can influence that. And here you will find, among others, the love of Jesus, the equality of the sexes in that sense, and the desire of Jesus to reach all of mankind, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. In that sense, therefore, you are talking about a missionary call right here in Matthew chapter 1. My friend, did you find the concept of begot? And then it changed to something as like. The concept of reproduction as from male, male, female kind, to one where there is no male but only a female. There was a great gap in that, and it's called the miraculous, the virgin birth, promised in Isaiah chapter 7. And a lot of people will not come to Jesus Christ because of the concept of the miraculous in the Bible. And so in the earlier years, they tried to demythologize the Bible by removing all the miracles in it so that it becomes logical and acceptable to the mindset of the modern man. But the point simply is that if you remove miracles in the Bible, the question is what kind of a God do we worship? And I think C.S. Lewis, Oxford scholar, was right when he said, there are only no miracles if you have already concluded that there are no miracles. But if we are to take a look at our God consistently, that God is 
transcendent constantly and that with him nothing is impossible, then certainly miracles are possible, isn't it? And so if you take a look at this miraculous event in Matthew chapter 1, we begin to realize that regardless of our problems, regardless of the things that are weighing us down where we are right now, the problems that remove the hope in our minds, in our hearts, into the future, that you are confronted with the God with whom nothing is impossible, that he can change your life and my life, that he is in control of the problems as well as we do, and that there is hope for us as well. If we are in Christ Jesus, if we believe in Jesus Christ, then nothing is impossible indeed. We are staying at the condo of my nephew, Gian, and uh, sometimes we watch television. I'm sure you watch television also, don't you? Yeah, it's not sinful, necessarily. Well, I was surprised we were watching uh, this Star Trek, I mean this uh, Empire. The Empire Strikes Back. There was one scene in there, I think the young generation will understand this, and the older ones, I don't know about you, but the younger ones will identify with this. And there was this, uh, you know, this Jedi by the name of Yuda. And he was demonstrating the power of the force. Well, don't follow me literally on this. But he was describing how the power of the force, you know, can make anything possible for the Jedi. And so the submerged aircraft, fighter craft of Luke Skywalker was, you know, submerged in that swamp. And by closing his eyes and you know, raising his hand like that, and it was up and then flying into dry land. And Skywalker said, I can't believe it. And Yoda said, that's why you are a failure. If we don't believe in the God of miracles, then we fail. For the simple reason that faith in God is the one that makes our lives supernatural themselves. And we can expect miracles not simply because of the things that science can offer to us, but in the reality that faith in Jesus Christ makes things possible. Therefore, as we take a look at the new year, remember the past as well. Remember your ancestors. Remember your loved ones and wish that they too might find Jesus. You see, in all this, we are reminded that God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us. Mathematics tells us that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, where our lives are not mathematics. The distance between two points in our lives are always zigzag lines. If you take a look, for example, at the Exodus itself, you're wondering why God did not let the people directly from Egypt into the Promised Land. Why so many zigzags and so many years before they arrived at the Promised Land? And the simple reason is simply this, and that is that if they run through a straight line, they would enter into conflict with so many tribes along the way, and there will be losses of lives, and they will be discouraged to move to the Promised Land. That is why time and time again, you will find in the Bible that when they are in trouble, they would blame Moses and even stone him. Let's go back to Egypt. And so the zigzags allow us to handle our to, to allow us to adjust to the powers of God, to make us dependent upon him, and to motivate us to go on with our Christian lives. In that sense, therefore, we go through zigzags of our own lives simply because God allows us to go through that experiences to make us mature in our Christian life. Twelve years ago, in the winter of 1998, my wife and I came to Canada. The zigzag of our life was cancer for my wife. And she underwent surgery and she had to undergo radiotherapy here in Winnipeg. 
And it was a terrible time of questioning for myself. Of the billions of peoples in the world, why my wife? And somehow, in the consciousness of my mind, another question was formed, all right, if not your wife, whom would you recommend? Well, there's simply this reality of life that God allows us to pass through the zigzag. It can be death, it can be sickness, it can be failure. But the point simply is that God does not give up on him. If we don't give up on him, he will never give up on us because he has a plan for every one of us. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us, I have a plan for good and not for evil. And Job chapter 42, verse 2 reminds us that God is almighty. No one can change the plan of God for your life and my life in that sense. For the grace of God will allow us to move through this plan until God is glorified in your life and my life. There are questions, obviously. And then let's take a look at the journey in Luke chapter 2. Some scholars would say that Joseph was older. Others would say in poetic form that they were simply teenagers. So you have two teenagers traveling for three days from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a three-day journey. But the question is, why will Joseph bring his wife on her ninth month of pregnancy on such a hazardous, dangerous, delicate kind of journey into Bethlehem? Why not leave her in Nazareth? And perhaps the answer to that is simply the reality that many people in the village of Nazareth must be aware that the pregnancy was out of the ordinary that she was not supposed to be pregnant at the time yet, and yet she was pregnant. And it was a struggle for these two young people, really. How do you cope with the wagging tongue of the city itself, of the village? You could not leave your wife unprotected from the wagging tongues of people who probably would look at your wife in that sense and constantly in their mind insult her and hurl all kinds of words such adulteries and so on and so forth. So to protect the honor of his wife and the name of his wife, probably he decided to bring her along with him. But the second question you can ask is this, why was there no room in the inn? The Bible does not say that they arrived in the middle of the night. The Bible does not say that that was the only inn in the city either. And the Bible does not mention any innkeeper for that matter. So why no room in the inn? And here you will find the reality of the world, of a fallen world in which we live, that if there are, in fact, as one Calvin Miller once said, about six or so inns out there, the affluent sinners of the time had rooms in the inns because they could afford it, because they were known and they were somebodies, but the Son of God had no room in the inn. Why is that? The very creator of mankind cannot find room in the inn. And why is it that the innkeeper was not named nor mentioned? Could it be that the innkeeper is every one of us? Could it be that God is seeking a room in our heart, in our lives as well, in our homes? Could it be that the symbol of the absence of the innkeeper symbolizes every one of us here today? That God is seeking men and women who will give room for the birthing of the Son of God in their lives. I like Sunday school kids. Every Christmas they always present a pageant of some kind. One pastor asked the Sunday school kids, 
Can you write to God about your impression of last Sunday's musical? <laughs> That's dangerous to ask kids. And one kid wrote to God, Dear God, we had fun last Sunday. I wish you were present. <laughs> wow. So they had a, a pageant. They will have to tell the story of the Christmas story. There was one boy who was not always very sharp, but very big, very tall. So he was given a part in the drama. And the part that he had to play was that of an innkeeper. And since the Bible does not allow him to talk, it was perfect for him. That means he would not forget any line. That means that the only part he would have in the story was to shake his head. And so there was this drama unfolding before the people, and everyone was focused, and their eyes riveted on their own children and grandchildren, you know. And then this, uh, Joseph and Mary got into the scene, and then approached the innkeeper. There he was, and he was pleading, Can you give us a room? My wife is about to give birth to our first child. And he simply shook his head. He was doing so far. And then once again they appealed, Please, please. And then they move out. But then Joseph ad-libbed. He did something that was not in the script. So he went back to the innkeeper and said, Well, please one more time. Will you have mercy on us? Give us a room. And this time, Wally, the name of the boy, he didn't know what to do anymore. That was not on the script. So finally he simply said, No room, but you can have mine. Well, I thought that was a better version of the Christmas story, isn't it? People have no room for Jesus, but he can have room in our hearts and in our lives, doesn't it? And so here we find the journey. Why was there no room? Perhaps it is a challenge to all of us that in the years ahead, may it be that the Lord Jesus will always be in your home and in your hearts as well. But the third question perhaps is this. Why was there no guidance? The shepherd had guidance from the angels. It was very precise where to find Jesus Christ. In a manger, by a cave. The Magi had their guidance. The star of Bethlehem. Why was there no guidance for Joseph and Mary? Where to go? As a matter of fact, if it was a, a census for taxation purposes, then it was possible that Joseph had property in Bethlehem. Therefore, he could have relatives in Bethlehem. Why did they not go to their relatives? Why was there no guidance? The Magi followed the star for two years almost, some scholars would say. Incidentally, have you ever asked yourself the question, if the Magi were women, what difference would it make? I, I mean, suppose they were women. What, ha what would have happened? I suggest to you, they would have arrived earlier. <laughs> Why? Because women would ask questions if they are lost. Men would not. Secondly, I think they would make that stable beautiful. And it will not be smelly, but it will be perfumed. Not only that, they would cook good food as well. But the point is, why was there no guidance? I don't know. Perhaps this is the tension in our Christian lives, that there are questions in our Christian lives that we don't have the answers to. But the fact that we don't have the answers to some of our questions right now does not mean that the answers are not there. 
The one thing we do know is this, that even if I don't have the answers to my questions right now, I know who knows the answer to my question. And if God knows the answer to my question, if he loves me, if he has a plan for me, plan for good, then I can trust the one who knows the answer to my unknown question, and that is good enough for me. So in that sense, therefore, we navigate between mystery and answered questions and miracles, the provisions of God we have never expected before. The mystery of our life, the unanswered questions, make us dependent upon God constantly. It increases our faith to believe. And when we believe, then miracles can happen in our lives as well. So constantly we navigate like two trucks. And then there will be miracles that will come for us. And then lastly, the visitors. The visitors were the angels. Among others, extraterrestrial. Well, if you take a look really at the account, there were extraterrestrials, the angels. There were terrestrials, the shepherds and the magi. And there were even senior citizens. The angels said, peace on earth and to men of goodwill. Well, the message of peace can be traced back to Isaiah as well, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace and of his peace there will be no end. Now, obviously, there is a geographical component to that, and that is peace can be geographical that will feed the whole earth. But the thing about this kind of peace among mankind is that in the language of St. Augustine, you can never have peace unless it be the peace that God can give mankind. So peace is dependent on righteousness. Righteousness produces justice. Justice produces peace. In that sense, therefore, the Christmas story reminds us that the people of God must not only celebrate the birth of Jesus, but must live lives that are righteous and just in their society so that peace will come. Because only then can we truly be men of peace ourselves. But the other side about that peace is the concept of Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. And altogether, you begin to realize that the Old Testament concept of shalom and the New Testament concept of irene are the same peace, wholeness, well-being. But the concept of the New Testament is a little bit different. The concept of Romans is this. You have peace with God, which means that the peace with God is an event that comes to you and me the moment we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In that sense, it is a past event. It is not dependent on external circumstances. Once you have faith in Christ, you have peace with God. You have been forgiven. You have been reconciled. So that has sense of permanency in you. On the other hand, what it does is the moment you have peace with God, then it gives you access to God in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, 2, and 3 as well. If you have access to God, that means to say that you can come to God in prayer anytime. And the concept of access to God is permanent. It is a matter of right. And it is without limit. No, you can go to someone else in the, in the world today. And when you have access to presidents and prime ministers and so on and so forth, those access are by virtue of introduction. And they are oftentimes not unlimited. There are limited durations, one time, twice. But when you are the child of God and you have peace with God in Jesus Christ, the access to God is unlimited and it's permanent. It's merely defined by your relationship with God on any given point. And that is why the Christmas reminds us of the power that God has given to us already. And that power is simply defined in terms of Romans 8.32, when God said that if he will not deny you his only son, then he will not deny you anything at all. Or in the language of John chapter 14, 13, and 16, we are told one thing, and that is, 
Ask in my name, and it shall be given you. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? Now, in my country, we had a new president. One time, he met with the former chief justice of the land in a party, and he said, I want you to be a member of the Board of Regents of the State University. And uh, he said, yes, I'd like to serve. So he signed a note. Now, when the president signs a note, that is an endorsement. Do you think that his application will have power? Who will say no? The endorsement of the president is there already. Well, let me put it to you, my brothers and sisters. If the endorsement is from Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords above all other names in the world, then your prayer is the most powerful of all. Because it is already with the endorsement of Jesus Christ himself, the very God, and then the name of Jesus Christ is Amen in the book of Revelation. Therefore, when you have peace with God, you have access to God, you have power in your Christian life, and you move into 2011 with the reality, wow, is there anything impossible for God? But the other side about that is not only peace with God, but the peace of God that passes understanding. And that is in the realm of spiritual gift in Galatians chapter 5. That the gift of God is love, joy, and peace. It is the kind of peace that is not dependent on external factors. As a matter of fact, even contrary, you may have problems, but somehow you have peace of mind. Because it is not something that you generate from within. It is something that the Spirit of God gives to you. It is the gift of God that he gives to his people who believe in him. But peace is there. The peace of God that passes understanding. And then the shepherds went and then the Magi worshipped him. Perhaps let me close with this. Worship him. It's amazing that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, the command of God to... Moses was to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they will worship me. Now, the concept of worship is amazing, isn't it? When you study the concept of worship in the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch, you are given the impression that God commands his people to worship him, and yet he makes, people, he makes it difficult for his people to worship him. In Exodus chapter 19, for example, he said, gather the people by the foot of Mount Sinai, and I will talk to them. And then he prescribed conditions how they can gather, and how God can talk to them. Number one, you must come with your washed clothes. Number two, you must refrain from sexual relationship if you are married. And number three, you must touch the fringes of the area, because if you do, you will be dead. So how can God command that we worship him, and yet at the same time make it difficult for us to worship him? Well, the problem really is that oftentimes we overlook the fact that the God who commands we worship him is a holy God. And because he is holy, there's always distance between the holy God and the sinful man. Therefore, sinful man cannot approach the holy God and not die. And so the only way they can do that was God provided the concept of the sacrificial offering. And the sacrificial offering made Worship, not impossible, not difficult, but made worship possible. In the New Testament, the sacrificial offering was removed completely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we celebrate Christmas because the final offering was given for us. Now worship is possible for us. We need not be afraid to come before God. In that sense, therefore, the concept of the holiness of God deters us from taking the holiness of God for granted, but rather... We must not worship a user-friendly God that we can manipulate, because if you can manipulate a user-friendly God who is not holy, someone you cannot fear, then you will not at all worship him and fear him and obey him. So if in that sense, therefore, worship becomes the foundation, the fountainhead of service. 
No one can worship God in His presence and not serve Him completely and immediately. This church have helped a camp in the Philippines called Amadeus. Last year we had our 36th wedding anniversary and there was a young man who sang at our wedding anniversary. The song he sang was so beautiful that many people requested for a copy of that. And a few weeks before we came over here, a call was given to me and said, Boyet Dominguez, the boy, the young man who died, uh, who sang at our wedding, died. Wedding anniversary died. And I said, are you sure he is the one? Yes. So I could not accept it, so I called up my wife and said, call the office and find out if it was really him. They confirmed it was him. The story goes something like this. He was leading a worship service among the young people in that camp. And he was just leading him in such heavenly worship. At the end of that worship service, he knelt down to pray. And when he knelt down, he said, the presence of God is here. And then he fell over with a massive heart attack and died. Now let me take a look at the song he sang the year before. And, he's, and he said this. In his song he said, And when my life's complete, I will lay my crown at his feet, and then I will worship him on bended knees. My brothers and sisters, that's how he died, and he wrote his epitaph by the song he sung a year before at our wedding anniversary. When my work and life is complete, I will lay my crown at his feet. I will worship him. And he was leading a worship service among the young people. And then he knelt down on bended knees. And then the Lord took him home. His last words were, the Lord is here. And he died. He passed away. But many more young people took the place that he left behind. Christmas time. Ancestry, a journey, and the visitors of Jesus Christ. May it be that as we move into 2011, we will live as we should and ought to. We will be doing the right thing at the right place at the right time. So that any time the Lord calls us home, we are ready. But at the Christmas story, remember this. We are in this Christmas time to experience him to worship Him, to proclaim Him, to hope in Him. And if we can do that, then it will be a blessed New Year and the years beyond. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all of you. God bless you. Thank you, Brother June, for reminding us of what Jesus Christ made possible. Uh, God at work in our hearts and lives. Uh, God is real. He's, uh, he's somebody who we can know personally. And that came through so strong this morning. Thank you so much. Um, can we do something a little different? Alec, can you come up here for a minute, please? I want you to, I know I'm embarrassing you. And after, you're going to smile right now, but after you're going to kick me, I know. But I want you to lead us... Uh, Maybe you and your sisters even lead us in the doxology. Could you do that? Could some of the sisters come and help? Are we doing the service first or are we doing it now? Let's do it and then, I'll, and then I'm going to pray. Okay.
What, and I'll just come up soon. Let's sing the doxology. Is that? Come, yeah. come, come, come. Come, Arnell, come. <laughs> come. Is this the doxology or the... <laughs> the Lord bless you. Huh? Doxology? Huh? Okay. Okay. Can you give the speech? No. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, the Lord... Okay, let's sing that song, okay? Okay, we'll come. Uh, okay. This is impromptu and I'll get faster for you. Oh, 